Hello everybody and welcome to the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, Research Fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology and I really don't like breaking the rules. And that's a rule I stick to probably around 95% of the time. Why all this talk about rule breaking? Well, because that's the topic of today's podcast. How does conservation deal with rule breaking and wildlife crime? Now, the rule breaking and the crime we'll be talking about is stuff like poaching in protected areas, for example. How can we use surveillance technology, new computational methods and social science to address rule breaking? We'll be talking drones, infrared technology, global positioning systems, cameras and how social science can help to understand the motivations and circumstances behind rule breaking and crime. Now, to keep me on the straight and narrow and make sure I stick to my rule that ZSL Wild Science podcast should be no longer than 45 minutes, generally we stuck to that about 93% of the time, I have Tom Letessia here, also a research fellow here at ZSL, a marine biologist and a drone aficionado. So, Tom, drones, why? So, I come at this principally as a marine ecologist. I'm fascinated with where, where animals go, where they are, you know, how many are they, and for the last you know, seven, seven, eight years, I've been working primarily on sharks. And we saw that one of the sort of primary drivers of shark distribution is now human pressures. So my segue into rule breaking has been, how do we manage how we as people are influencing the distribution and the recovery potentially of these species, which is why increasingly I'm fascinated by the field of rule breaking, compliance, enforcement, and surveillance and how both tech and social science increasingly help us improve governance around these issues. I was mildly worried there when you said your segue into rule breaking and I was like, what do you have to confess? (laughs) (laughs) What did you do, Tom? (laughs) Anyway, it's all good. So many of the technologies we're going to talk about with our guests and with you, of course, have previously been used to, well, monitor wildlife, like you said. And I suppose previous to that, they were probably also developed, say, in a military or people surveillance law enforcement context. So to what extent are we already using these technologies now to monitor rule breakers and crime in conservation? Well, this is where the field of fishery monitoring has really exploded onto the scene over the last 10 years. Regulations for uh, high sea fishing license comply fishing boats to be fitted with the satellite trackers, AIS technology. And that really brings about a whole suite of opportunities and it has really changed the field in terms of how we understand you know, human fishing pressure in time and space. And increasingly, these satellite trackers and uh, the movement of these boats are being used to guide certainly patrolling activity. So it might sort of inform, you know, where do you want to patrol because you're seeing something that you that looks suspicious something based on dodgy. the movement. Exactly. Something something is amiss. Yeah. Similarly with, with drones, you know, they might not lead directly to a conviction, but it can help you task, you know, your other assets. So for example, where do your your rangers go? Where do your fishery patrol boats go? Because you think that you've got something there and you want to look a bit closer. Okay, so lots of possibility then. Let's get on with it. Our first guest will come at all this from a marine perspective too. Christina Berder is a postdoctoral fellow at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. And woo, a fellow German. <laughs> so Christina, when we talk about rule breaking and illegal fisheries in a marine context, there's a lot of area to cover, literally. 
and it's often quite remote. How can technology help to observe what's going on in our oceans or more specifically in our marine protected areas? Well, that is a very good question. And uh, when you say like a lot of area to cover, literally 70% of the planet and a lot of it so remote that it's beyond the horizon. So for a lot of ocean areas, we have no idea or very, very limited knowledge what is going on. The coasts are a different thing because there's a lot of activity. We are very familiar with it, being the landlubbers and uh, moving in these areas. But as soon as you go further away from coast, you lose sight of the shore and go to the high seas, things change. So it literally is still the Wild West out there to a certain degree. So in order to better understand what the situation is, who's out there, who's doing what, we need to take a really big lens, which means in this case, ideally, going to space using satellites and uh, the technologies on these satellites to monitor the areas we can't directly see or patrol, such as, for example, very large marine protected areas. So with Tom, we just talked about some of the positioning systems that are on board of vessels. I mean, I don't really understand technology at the best of times. Um, (laughs) So how can we use that, I suppose, that links in with satellites? I assume probably you use uh, Google Maps as a navigation system. I do, yes. So you're you're probably more familiar with the technology. (laughs) So I don't get lost, yes, (laughs) Yes. absolutely. So there's a couple of positioning systems that help vessels in the first instance navigate. So I work with a system called AIS, which stands for Automatic Identification System. It's a tool for navigational safety, and it basically works like a radar with two ships talking to each other. So a a transceiver, so it receives and transmits, and the ships talk to each other regarding what type of ship they are, where they are, how fast they are going, where they're heading. So it helps them coordinate, especially in bad weather. But we can also pick these signals up through either towers on land or through satellites, and with that, see the track of these vessels. It's very similar to putting, for example, tags on animals to see where they're going. Cool. So we cannot just put tags on animals, but we can also follow ships around. I mean, we're following, literally, we're following planes, we're following trucks, we're even tracking our spouses or our kids or uh, football players. So (laughs) you're giving me ideas. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a new idea. Hashtag rule breaking. (laughs) (laughs) Don't eat that. Yeah, more on the surveillance side than yeah. rule breaking in this yeah. case, aren't they? <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, Not when I start using it. <laughs> I guess the question is, how do you get from something that is just a position in time and space into something that's fishing activity, which is quite specific? Yes, so this is indeed a fairly specific and has only been really done over roughly the last half a decade, a bit more, that this data really has been used to better understand activities, not just tracks, which has been around. So as I mentioned, the AIS is a system for navigational safety. And then there's a country-based system that's called VMS, Vessel Monitoring System, that is more used to really monitor ships like fishing vessels. But this is a lot of data that comes in. Some of these vessels ping every few seconds. So you get a massive amount of data, terabytes of it. As a biologist who likes to open Excel sheets and look at data, this definitely was (laughs) way beyond my scope. Computer science is really where you want to turn to. So what we did is we took the tracks and I spent a lot of unhappy hours just looking at raw tracks, raw pings of vessels and trying to understand what they're doing. And luckily enough for fishing vessels, it's pretty obvious. They leave port, they go where they want to go, they go as straight as they can. And when they start to do really erratic behavior, 
It's usually when they start fishing, which tells them apart from cargo ships or tankers, which go straight at very constant speeds because time is money. So they want to go where they have to go. And uh, with the fishing vessels, when they start, for example, zigzag back and forth, they don't do that for fun. So it's actually very obvious when you start looking at the data. So we started to label these uh, instances where we knew like this is transiting, this is fishing, and this is different types of fishing because you get an identifier of the vessel too. So often you know what fishing vessel it is, even before you see what it's doing. Yeah, then we started to take out the heavy guns and train machine learning algorithms to automatically detect these behaviors. Sounds amazing. This is a completely new emerging field, isn't it? That application is. A lot of the technology has been around and it has been used in a variety of fields. I mean, of course, Google is way ahead on that field and we're all familiar with uh, similar applications, for example, facial recognitions and such from images. So we basically just repurposed a lot of this knowledge and applied it to the fishing vessels. We at first weren't sure if it would work. It was literally just try and error, a lot of error in the first place. But then we found that we actually, with continuing to train the algorithm and provide more input and input, it gets more intelligent. And now we're around 95 to 99% accuracy to really detect what the vessels are doing. That's amazing. And you have to spend less time looking at all those data coming in as well. So more happy hours now. Yes. Yeah. I'm never, ever going to do that again. <laughs> I labeled two, That's the computer's yeah. job now. <laughs> yeah. I labeled two million points. That was the first two years of my PhD. Oh, wow. That's... And uh, yeah, you get rather allergic to seeing dots and lines on a screen after that. But of course, it's. I'm still excited to, when I get raw data and really understand like in cases where we have some context and we want to really go and see what the vessel did, it's still very exciting to see. And some of these ships are out to very interesting things out there. Can these surveillance systems be cheated? Do you see specific behaviors which you know might not be a smoking gun as such, but it will give you an indication that there's something suspicious going on? Yeah, that's a good question. The first thing is this is big data and big data works best in a context. So often we see behavior where we go like, oh my God, what is this? And then it turns out to be a vessel, for example, hired to do research. So more often than not, there's a very logical explanation. But sometimes you see cases like fishing in marine protected areas, for example, where they're not supposed to be. But the problem with some of these systems like AIS is they can be switched off or tampered with. So there is legislations that govern that, but they're not enforced. So we see a lot of times that vessels either completely falsify their identity or their location, or they just travel towards a marine protected area, then disappear completely, when we have no data for about like two or three days, and then they reappear on the other side. So it doesn't take much to assume what was happening in between, but we don't see it, we go blind in these cases. Yeah, and obviously that's not going to help you if you're looking for a conviction. No, but the lack of data is information in itself. So we're working to flag the vessels that do that, flag the areas and literally the flags, the, the countries that are more prone to these things. And that, of course, helps us advise on where, for example, critical areas are, where one should keep an eye on with other surveillance technologies like planes or drones or ships. And, of course, also better understand uh, what type of legislation is needed to make these tools more useful in the context of surveillance. Because AIS itself has not been designed to be a surveillance system. 
so ultimately I suppose the data that you provide is the kind of thing that then lets us hone into which areas do we need to put proper patrols in or drones you could go in with your drones Tom to kind of see what's really going on on the ground. Yeah that's one of the applications we are more focusing on understanding the impacts of the activities so especially the the fishing how much fishing is happening where what type of fishing which flags are fishing and uh, how does it change over time or how do the vessels for example behave around marine protected areas we did a study a couple of years ago around the galapagos marine reserve in ecuador in the pacific a very iconic reserve mm. and we had anecdotal evidence and stories that the fishing vessels were lining up around the marine reserve boundaries on the outside something that's called fishing the line And it's a perfectly legal thing. You see Mm. quite a bit. They are waiting for the fish to come out of the marine reserve because they, of course, don't know where the boundaries are. And often marine reserves, because they protect the fish, there's more fish and there's bigger fish inside. So fishermen can benefit from that when they leave the reserve. And that's a perfectly legal and even beneficial thing if managed correctly. So we heard about that. And some fishermen said like they actually support the marine reserve but they would never officially state that. So we used the AS data to pin down where they're fishing and we found four times the fishing effort within 20 kilometers from the boundary compared to 400 kilometers by area. So there was something. They are the experts, they know best and they wouldn't go there if there's nothing there for them. Really fishing the line. So what do you think the future holds for these kind of technologies? Where to next? Oh, well, that to is infinity a very... and beyond. <laughs> yeah, there's no end. No, actually, this is a very good question. There's a lot of new frontiers. I'm a biologist, but I'm very excited to be like part of this technological revolution in conservation. 20, 30 years ago, we started to really explore the oceans regarding understanding the physical parameters. And then we went and tagged the big animals to know where they're going. And Now we're more or less tagging the apex predators in the ocean, which are the fishing vessels and also other vessels and activities such as mining, oil and gas. Shipping has a big impact. So better understanding those is definitely in the very near future. And then also work what we call uh, the dark fleets. It's not as sinister as it sounds. It sounds amazing. (laughs) It sounds amazing. I was just about singing the the Darth Vader in in my head there. Every single time. Um, No, it's like these vessels that do not have the transponders. So as legislation varies, who needs to have it? And of course, compliance also varies. A, we don't know how many fishing vessels are out there. And then B, because that number is missing, we have no baseline. So we don't know how many we're seeing or we're not seeing. So the ones we're not seeing are what we call the dark targets. And we try to get a better understanding of these activities and the amount of vessels out there with other technologies, for example, detecting lights at night, which is called VIRS. It's not a new technology, but novel applications for ships. And then other things like radar imaging, where we can really pick up there is someone there. And then hopefully with further, again, the context plays a big role with further information, learn more about who's there. Should we keep an eye on that? We are areas where we're more or less completely blind with other technologies. That sounds super exciting. What I primarily like is the idea that you may have on your screens track Tom on a research boat. I may have <laughs> that done gives that. Me, uh, that gives me great joy. I explained it while we were arrested. Well, we have like a, a colleague. He has played a big role in like stories like that. Uh, there's actually a brilliant New York Times article about that called Palau and the Poachers. 
whereas the story about him being in West Virginia helping the Palau and Coast Guard or enforcement vessels tracking down an illegal fishing vessel like through phone and through different it's time amazing. zones and uh, they got the vessel yeah so that was one of these stories where for the first time it was it was like a bit of like a live action movie. Are they going to get it? And I think they got it a couple of kilometers before the high seas where they couldn't have been boarding it anymore. Technology. Yeah. I know, that should be made into a movie. I, th- I think actually someone asked about that. Really? It is made you do book. know that the scientist though at the start yeah. always comes up, there's a problem and everybody ignores the scientist. Here you get a good old fashioned cops and robbers, you know. Yeah, yeah it's good. but then you have this computer analytic person who sits in a little room in the middle of West Virginia. <laughs> yes, He's the hero of the story, which I like. Yeah, yeah. totally. No, that's, that's, I think, the take home message from that. Yeah, it's in a, in a good book now. It's called uh, The Outlaw Ocean. I highly recommend the read. Oh, cool. So, Tom, going back to drones, how easy is it actually to find, say, your sharks at sea using a drone? That must be quite difficult. Yes, we use our drones both for sort of classical wildlife monitoring and, and also for, you know, also detection of fishing activity. But uh, yeah, I think you touched on, on an important point, you know, the concentration of these animals, but also the fishing activity can be quite low, you know, especially if you're on, you know, in the open ocean. So I think there's there's a lot of cues to take from maybe terrestrial research. I think you should become a terrestrial biologist. <laughs> Just laughing at me. Okay, good, fair enough. It's harder. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder, you think? But at least we can find things. Yeah, there are more data, so... more data to analyze. <laughs> Just use an algorithm. We yeah, just learned right. about this. So on that front, we have with us an expert in the use of drones in uh, terrestrial ecosystems, Dr. Serge Wich from uh, Liverpool John Moore University. Welcome. Thank you. So Serge, tell us about um, the use of drones on land, particularly in the tropics. How does it work? I mean, I can still see how it might be difficult because there's lots of trees in the way, right? There are lots of trees in the way and they are often a problem. So we try to focus on things that are very high up in the trees so that you can actually find them or use methods that help us to look through the trees a little bit. And the latter is particularly infrared cameras that can help us to find warm things on the forest floor that you might not be able to see with standard visual spectrum cameras. So what kind of things are you looking for? We are looking for primates, of course. I'm a primatologist by training, so I look for orangutans, spider monkeys. But those, of course, are high up in in the forest. But we're also trying to see whether we can find rhinos and elephants that are on the forest floor. And as long as there's openings in the forest, we have a chance to find animals that are on the floor as well. And this is where, where infrared comes in, because it just lights up like a Christmas tree. Yes, it, it, as long as the forest floor or the forest canopy is colder than, than the animals, so mammals particularly, they are of course very warm, and they light up against these very cold backgrounds if you fly very early in the morning or very late in the afternoon or early evening or at night. That's the key. There needs to be a difference between the temperature of the vegetation, of the ground, and the animals. If you fly against a very, very hot background, then animals might even be cooler than the background. Um, So we're talking about wildlife crime and rule breaking. Can we use that same technology also to study that, to find out where illegal activities are going on? Yes, the infrared is very helpful to, to find animals. And of course, people that go to hunt valuable animals, we want to stop those before they get there. So if we can be monitoring the animals with the drones, 
we can hopefully find the people when they come in. Alternatively, we can try to find people. So we're doing experiments as well, where we try to find poachers in different settings under different vegetation cover to see if we can detect those. And the reason for doing a lot of experiments is still that we struggle with how many do we actually miss. And I think that's a very important issue to try to get to. We all hear stories about animals that have been detected and, and that's great. But if you talk about finding rhinos or poachers and you fly over an area and you say, oh, this area is clear, then you need to be very sure that mm. it's clear and have a very high probability of that. And I think we're not there yet, but I think that's something that we need to focus on to really make these tools part of, of standard operations. So that's a nice aspect, at least if you're looking to build algorithms around you know, detection of, of human silhouettes is that you've got a lot of data for your training sets. Yes, exactly. And, we, and we, we need to move towards these algorithms. Any human observer will be fatigued very quickly. The first few minutes you're looking at the screen and you're very sharp and you might see things. But a drone that moves fast, after a few minutes you get tired. If you look at 100 images, you get like, okay, I've seen this before. This gets a little bit boring. So computers are great to help us with this. So, and they might sometimes even be better than we are at detecting things. So finding the way of how computers can help us to detect things so that rangers in the field don't lose valuable time looking at computer screens. They are very busy. These are often very stressful situations. So we need to facilitate their work as much as we can by having a very good workflow that gives them the information they need and not information that they're really not looking for, like thousands of images mm. of just grass. So where have you been applying this technology so far? Um, we've done some tests with uh, orangutans in the Malaysian part of Borneo, mm -hmm. with spider monkeys. We have been working with lemurs in Madagascar. We're also doing tests in the, in the UK because it's just easy to do tests here and, and get our data. So we've been, been working with quite a few partners to try to make this work. And at the moment, we're really focusing on what are the different scenarios that you might work in in the field with a drone and how can we facilitate the workflow that you get the near real-time detections mm -hmm. in the field. If you had to put a number of it, how far are we from having rangers in the field with this kind of technology that you're uh, describing? Very close in certain situations. We can basically now deploy a drone if it's an area where people have a relatively good computer in the field and they fly, let's say, only four or five kilometers away from them and there's a live video feedback. We can do machine learning for rhino detection and car detection and people detection on that computer in almost real time. That's totally amazing, yeah, isn't it? that's amazing. Massive game changer. And of course, when, when people fly further away, so if you have a drone that flies 40 kilometers away from you, then we need to do the detection on the drone and try to send a ranger a ping back on the computer or other device that they're using that tells them on this location, there's a high probability that mm. there's a, a human and then, or a rhino. And then they can decide, oh, this is probably a group of tourists or hmm, tourists yeah. never go here, actually. Yeah. That is probably something else let's go there or let's lower the drone so that we get a clearer image back so we can actually find out what it is 
And then when you have this sort of intermediate data filtration, these certainty issues and what are your errors, you know, what are your failure rates, it becomes so much more important because you've already sort of done an initial filtration of the data. Yes, exactly. And, and that's where sort of the, the balance between the false positives, like where do we say it's a rhino or a human, it's actually not, becomes actually very important. How do we balance that? It is costly to go to an area and then find out, oh, it's not a person, it was a, it was a deer, but it's even more costly if you miss a person. So we have to train these models that we get the accuracy for actually detecting people when they're there as high as, as we can even though that might come at the cost of some false positives. That's really amazing technology. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. Excellent. So let's stick with algorithms and interpreting data and chat to our next guest, Colin Beal from the University of York. Colin is a reader in ecology with broad interest in spatial ecology and conservation biology, particularly in Africa. So Colin, when we think of law enforcement to tackle wildlife crime, say, for example, in Africa, what does that currently look like? How does it work? Uh, so a, a lot of the, the hard work in Africa is done by rangers. These are typically people from the local communities who may be employed by protected areas to go out on patrol, either by foot, walking long distances in hot weather, sometimes over multiple days and camping out in the bush. And as they go, they're, they're going with a GPS They're saying where they've been, what they've seen, and if they find evidence of illegal activities, maybe they're finding snares or they're finding poacher camps, things like that, then they'll report those uh, and they may be ultimately trying to find poachers themselves. And then eventually, after maybe a few days in the field, they'll come back and they'll put all of those data onto a database and then we have to work out what's going on and see if we can understand the patterns behind these. That's where your algorithms come in, right? Uh, that's exactly it. So people are good at interpreting data. A lot of the rangers know pretty well where things are happening and what's going on. But actually, just like playing any sort of game, we're playing sort of game of hide and seek. These days, computers are pretty much the best thing at playing games. They'll beat us at chess. They'll beat us at everything. They'll probably beat the poachers in the end. <laughs> They beat me at opening Excel most <laughs> of the time. So can you give us an example of uh, an instance where you've, you've actually gone in and intervened and, and made recommendations for these patrols? So uh, a typical example is the work that we've done in Queen Elizabeth National Park in Uganda, which is a beautiful little savanna protected area in the middle of a large area of forest. And there the rangers have been gathering data using a piece of software called SMART for a very long time. And that stores all the data over many years and our algorithms take those data and tell us where the rangers have been and what they've seen and then they're able to identify other areas in the protected area that have similar characteristics maybe they're similarly close to villages or alongside water areas where the rangers don't go and then we used that information to say well here's a hot spot likely hotspot for illegal activities that the rangers don't go. So we went out to Uganda some years ago now and sat with the rangers, talked about all the things that we'd done, and they laughed at us a little bit, said, there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then uh, we went off uh, on the back of the truck and we went on patrol with them, and they were very sceptical. But actually, we went out and we found many more snares than they've ever found on a patrol before. By lunchtime, when we met some poachers, and we had to arrest the poachers and we came back, There. So they were really impressed by this first experience. Uh, and after that, they allowed us to set up an experiment where we used three 
of the ranger posts as our experimental system and the, the rest of the ranger posts we didn't and for those three we gave them targets based on our algorithms that said go to these places each day we'd tell them where to go come back and they ended up finding between three and five times as many illegal activities when they were using our a directed algorithm approach that's an incredible way of computizing local knowledge, you know, mm. bringing these really powerful algorithms to bear on, on you know, traditional information. It's amazing. Yeah, that's exactly it. So we, so we use algorithms to identify places where illegal activities are happening that people don't already know about. But then we can also use algorithms to play the game of how do we maximize our chances of catching poachers. Uh, which is a slightly different problem. Mm. How do we protect the resource? So if you think of a resource like elephants in a protected area that are very high value, do you try and set up a perimeter of rangers all around the edge of the protected area, stop them from coming in in the first place? Or do you do the opposite and essentially sit a ranger with every elephant? What's the best way of defending this resource? And maybe the best option is somewhere in between. And that's the sort of game that an algorithm can do and work out how these methods perform in, in the long term. I suppose in some cases also for the rangers themselves, going on patrol when it's about wildlife crime and a high value resource could be quite dangerous. Maybe these algorithms could also help with keeping rangers safe by telling them what to expect. Uh, that's exactly it. So the different types of illegal activities in protected areas divide up into really diverse range of things from commercial poaching of high value wildlife products to commercial poaching of forest products that some of the trees in Africa are worth $64,000 per cubic metre, which is an immense draw, but also right down to subsistence poaching for bushmeat. Typically, a lot of the poachers that get caught are people who are just going out, putting out a few snares to catch some sort of antelope to pay for school fees, or they've got a medical emergency and they've got to pay for these things. Those are the easy people to catch because they don't do this very often. Mm. They're not armed, but also they're not the big problem. The big yeah. problem are these commercial people. But if you're a, a ranger operating entirely independently, the reward for catching a poacher is, is going to be the same if you're catching this subsistence poacher or the person who's cutting grass for their, their thatch at home as it would be for the much more challenging task of setting up an ambush to catch a, an elephant poacher uh, who is going to be heavily armed and will definitely try and shoot at you. Yeah. So we want to warn them what's going to happen, but we also want to direct their efforts to where they can catch the types of poachers that the park managers really want to concentrate on. It's about credibility, you know, and improving the scarce resources and the outputs from those. Exactly. Uh, and it's also an ethical thing, because I think that we've, we've got to consider who is being punished. We don't want to punish the poorest mm. of the poor. Precisely. So what's next in your algorithm developments? <laughs> what's on the horizon? <laughs> I think that the next development is much more the second stage of algorithms, the predictive and prescriptive of describing how we're going to deal with different types of threats. So where do we put the ranges? Do we put them around the edges? Do we put them in the middle? How do we vary this day to day so that the poachers don't get used to seeing the rangers in those places? And that's the big challenge in this constant game of cat and mouse between rangers and poachers. But I think on the broader scale, thinking much more strategically, a lot of what we've focused on at the moment is the protected areas in Africa where these high value products are being extracted. But actually, even there, though the commercial poachers aren't making most of the money on these things. When ivory is extracted from Tanzania, say, it's around about $100 a kilo. By the time it gets to a black market in 
somewhere in Southeast Asia, say, there's a 10, 100 times markup on that. That's where the value is. That's where the demand is ultimately. And I think that the algorithms that allow us to strategically identify the choke points on this chain from raw wildlife to ivory chopsticks and then the money laundering at the end, where are the sensitive parts of this mm. chain is actually a much higher level set of analyses that we need to work on there. Yeah, I love that. You know, find the levers and yeah. so you can pull them. Yeah. Can I also make one suggestion? I think the, the high seas and the remote uh, protected areas that Christina was just talking about is an area, I think, where there's huge applications for this sort of the mm. sort of uh, techniques that you're talking about. Uh, yes, yeah, so we, we have colleagues at the University of Southern California who have been working with the Marine Coast Guard off California to catch both smugglers coming across the border, but also the illegal fishing activities over there. And the same set of algorithms work beautifully in that condition as well. In fact, it's somewhat easier because there's nowhere to hide on the open oceans. Exactly. Yeah, nowhere to hide. I really picture you like in a big strategy room now at a big round table just pushing little figures around. <laughs> that's, right. that, that's how I that's how I picture it. Whereas you know I just sit at my desk and do really boring science <laughs> comparatively. This is how I picture your work, Colin. Uh, well, it's one of those strange things, isn't it? I'm a, I'm a biologist and I over the time my career has taken me to so many different ways. But if you'd asked me 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I started, where I thought I'd be and what I thought I would learn during the course of my career, there were a number of things I'd never have guessed. The, how to set up an ambush to catch <laughs> elephant poachers was definitely not on the list of things I thought I'd probably need at some point. It's probably a transferable skill. Yeah, though. I was going to say, <laughs> that, 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 that has application in the industry as well. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom decided that he had to put everything he's learned so far in this podcast into practice and he went off to fly a drone somewhere. No, only kidding, of course. Tom is still here co-hosting, if now by the power of Skype. So please excuse the difference in sound quality. Now, Tom, we just talked about the responsibility that comes with having powerful tools to tackle wildlife crime, aka with great power comes great responsibility. So I suppose one thing that we should chat about is what drives people to break rules in the first place. Now, the few times I've broken rules, and I am very sorry about this, it was generally because I wasn't aware of the rules which I know is a convenient excuse, but of course there could be a myriad of reasons. So surely once we understand the reasons, we can address the rule breaking, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's very much the case. You know, it comes from a just a sort of pragmatic approach to rule breaking. And yeah, you can you can incorporate facets of sort of top down control, but you also need to understand very much the underlying drivers of human behavior. This is where uh, Anna Nuna comes in and where we've been working a lot with, with Anna. And Anna, I think, is a research fellow at the University of Exeter, right? So she's bringing together all the tools she can to address sustainability challenges, so I hear. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds like a really <laughs> big topic and a lot of responsibility. Yeah. So it can be very exciting learning about everything people do. But it's challenging because, as you said, sometimes people, they are not aware of the rules they're breaking even. Uh, So how can you work with that? So I often start by understanding what rules are in place. Let's say what policies are saying or what conservation projects want to have in place. And once I can try and measure that, I go and I speak with people to try and understand how they are using the resources and are they doing it in a sustainable way? Are they following the rules that they are supposed to be doing? 
So how can social science help? Because that's clearly social science type yeah. research, right? Talking to people, questionnaires, these kind of things. So the thing is, when we are speaking about breaking rules, we are often speaking about, let's say, sensitive behaviors. Because, well, if you're not really aware you're breaking a rule, maybe you are okay with sharing that information. Oh, yes, I have done that. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. Sometimes that truly happens and that's okay. But often people know they're doing something a bit naughty, right? And so they might be tempted to lie to you, of course. So they might say, I didn't know that was illegal. I didn't know I was doing something illegal. So luckily in the social sciences, because people lie about so many different subjects, in the social sciences, they come up with a number of specialized techniques to look at these issues. And they've been using them maybe since the 60s to try and look at many different topics. And recently, maybe in the last five to 10 years, people start reading a bit more about them and see, oh, so how can we use these new approaches to try and measure illegal behavior in conservation? And sometimes it's just a matter of really making people feel relaxed about sharing information. You know, in, instead of saying, have you done this or that, it's more like almost playing games with them in a way that they understand that we can't really use that information against them, but we will be able to use them at a more population level so that we can inform our measures. And it could be like playing cards with them or asking questions in an indirect way that we are not saying, have you done it, but do you know people that do it in the population? So it's just a lot of thinking about how to word the questions, how to make them feel at comfort sharing the information. So you play cards with people. Yeah. So That's some... awesome. <laughs> it's like I'm in the not... wrong job. I mean... It's yeah. not like poker games, right? It's... <laughs> but so let's say there's cards with drawings and we show them drawings with different activities and we say, looking at these cards, how many of them do you do? And I never ask them which ones, right? And so, but among these cards, we have options which are illegal, such as hunting bushmeat in a protected area or eating sea turtle, which is protected in that country or something like that. And so, you know, by asking these questions in different ways, people are generally more likely to give you the information you need. Or sometimes a few other techniques you have to play dice with them. And once they get a specific number, they then get a specific question associated with that number from the dice. And the more at ease you are with these techniques, and people actually, sometimes they actually enjoy them because it's looking at cards, it's playing dice with you. And so they feel a bit more like, oh yes, I am replying to a questionnaire, but in a way it's more interactive, so they enjoy it more. And also because they most of the times understand I can't find out if that specific person done it. It's just like a general, um, more general information. Then they are okay with reporting. And there's so many more, you know. Within conservation, we have so much to learn from reading, from sociology, psychology, economics. There's so many different ways of looking at these issues. And for example, so these techniques I was mentioning, they are about measuring behavior. But then there's other techniques that are more about understanding how people make decisions. So let's say you go to a supermarket, you decide to buy that shampoo instead of the other shampoo. Why is that? In market research, they have techniques 
tools to try and look at how consumers make decisions. And nowadays, we are using something similar, also in conservation, to try and understand, let's say, why are people buying that specific wildlife product, let's say, an orchid taken from the wild, instead of an orchid that is farmed? And again, we can show them cards with different options, uh, with different price ranges, source of the product, and we can see what's driving that decision. Is it that people mainly care about the price? Is it people that mainly care about where it comes from, the color of the flower, or what, whatever? And again, it's a tool from market research, and nowadays we are using it in conservation. And there's many more that we could learn about. This sort of questionnaire, you know, we've been talking a lot about plastic pollution. Mm. It's a bit of a tangent, but I think that kind of methodology you're talking about now will be hugely relevant to trying to understand what are the underlying decisions for people to use single plastics and, and how to try and curb that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you can include many different factors and then try and see how people trade off. So Anna, from your work and from your card playing, what are the main motivations or drivers behind rule breaking? And may I just reiterate, I wasn't aware of the rules um, when <laughs> I broke them. Um, I just really want to make that clear. Well, you know, because I have been working on many different case studies, I would say that often people make an assumption. Let's say if we are speaking about local communities in developing countries, often you, you make the assumption that poverty is a main driver. And often it is that, let's say, it is illegal to hunt within a national park but people need to feed their families or they need to make some money to um, sustain their families. So that's a potential driver. And in some of the case studies where I work, yes, there was the economic driver playing a very important role. But in other cases, for example, I was once looking at sea turtle consumption in the Cayman Islands. And it is illegal to take turtles from the wild. And there's a legal source of sea turtle that people can rely on. So in that case, it was not really a matter of, oh, I'm taking turtles from the wild because I'm poor. It's more that people still add some kind of preferences related to animals coming from the wild and the taste of the animal. So they would speak about the flavor of the meat being better. And also, for example, being a traditional use. So if I, I'm used to doing that, and if I've done that for so long, why should I be changing my ways? So, you know, in that case, it wasn't really the economic driver. There was something else underlying that type of behavior. And that's really important because, let's say, if you are to design a policy or a conservation project, you need to understand how people might actually comply with your proposed initiatives. And if there are strong traditions related to the use of a certain resource, it might be really challenging to change that behavior. So you need to understand the economics, the social, the cultural dimensions of that resource so that then you can actually design something that people might comply with. Let's say there's a new conservation policy that says, oh, there's a ban let's say a trade ban, and people can't fish that. But let's say if the fishers, they don't believe that's going to make a difference, they might say, well, there's no point in complying because that's not going to change the amount of sharks I'm finding at sea. You know, they might know that the rule is in place, but if they don't see that as a way of helping their situation or the population of the sharks or 
if they don't see that it's going to have an effect, there's no buy-in to then for them to comply. So it's it's very much a way of identifying the the leverage we can pull as conservationists, you know, and asking them and hearing from the actors and the stakeholders themselves. You know, where do they think? You know, what are the rules that they would suggest that are most likely to be followed and that would be most effective? Yeah, so that's a way to go about that. And, you know, sometimes it is difficult to ask that because basically they need to imagine how they could behave under a certain situation. And so, for example, for that, what it's very useful is doing some kind of scenarios that people have to think about and plan for. So, you know, playing a lot of what if, what if we do that? Would that affect the wildlife population? Would that affect your community? And then trying to understand what people are speaking about and what issues are coming across as important. But that requires quite a lot of effort, you know? So within conservation, we need to spend a bit more time understanding what are the, the social conditions and how we could work with those conditions to design something instead of design a project, implement a project, and then see what happens. Sometimes we rush, and I would say that's a bit of a problem. So it sounds like you really have your work cut out for you, Anna. So where to next? So I recently got a fellowship to move to um, a Portuguese university. And so I'll be doing some research on how to integrate social and ecological information so that we can improve the management of marine resources, especially. So I'll be, for some time, focusing on understanding how people are bringing different types of information to help make decisions that take into account these local communities and these local considerations. So it's going to be quite exciting because I will be able to look at a big picture of how projects are going all over the world, a bit more of a global scale and bringing all these case studies that I've been working on together. So I'm quite excited about that. That sounds super exciting. It also sounds like by the end of it, you can tell us in the conservation world a lot of where we have gone wrong in the past. And right as well. <laughs> and right, yes, yeah. I don't know why I feel so guilty talking to you. I don't know. It's like overwhelming feeling. This is <laughs> It's the confession. <laughs> I think it just goes to show how important it is to have solid socioeconomical, you know, and humanities understanding, you know, whenever we do in conservation, it's just not enough to have sort of top down control. You know, we really do need to be more nimble and more, you know, better at listening to people's experiences. Yeah. And that also means that we need to get better at working as a team with people that have different skills and can they, they can bring these insights that I am a trained biologist. It's just like as I was studying, I became more and more interested in wanting to know about the social sciences. So I started reading from other fields and learning about different fields. There's so many people we could learn from and by working together, then develop these really exciting new ways of looking at issues that we want to address in conservation. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more about technology to track not just wildlife, but also fisheries, for example, you can listen to our episode 19 on how electronic tracking has revolutionized marine conservation. And for those of you who would like to learn more about the importance of social science in conservation, card games and all, there's episode 23 on challenges and opportunities of using indigenous knowledge in conservation management. And of course, tune in again for the next episode of the Salazar Wild Science podcast. <laughs>